Hi, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is a podcast all about craft. On today's episode, I am joined by the prolific Glenn Adamson. Glenn is a writer and curator who works at the intersection of craft, design history, and contemporary art. His new book, which just came out earlier this year, is called Craft, an American History, and is this sweeping history of craft in the United States, but it's also a history of this country, a history of capitalism, of industry. It's a great great book that frames a lot of the conversation that Glenn and I had. He previously was the director of the Museum of Arts and Design here in New York and was the head of research at the V&A and a curator at the Chipstone Foundation. This conversation, though, starts very, very basic. I was interested in this line from his bio about working at the intersection of craft design history and contemporary art. I was curious about what that intersection was and how Glenn thought about these three different areas of study. From there, we spend a lot of time talking about craft, which I admit was a subject that I felt I knew the least about out of those three. And so we have what I thought was a really fascinating conversation about what craft is, how it developed and how it is different or separate from design, perhaps, and its history in the United States. We also talk about his time as a museum director, what it's like to be a historian, and his current research on futurism, which is really, really fascinating. There's a lot in this one that I found myself thinking about long after we had stopped talking. Remember, if you like this show, I hope you consider supporting it on Patreon. We offer three monthly tiers, $3 for students, $5 for patrons, and $10 for super fans. They give you all sorts of access to bonus content like monthly newsletters, early episodes, full transcripts of every episode, as well as exclusive bonus interviews each month. All of this while helping to continue to support the show. So if you like scratching the surface and want to see it continue, I hope you consider joining us on Patreon. You can visit patreon.com slash surface podcast for all the details and to help support the show. Thank you, as always, for listening. And here is me with Glenn Adamson. I think a good place to start to frame this conversation, to frame a lot of the things that I want to talk to you about, is actually the first line of your biography on your website. Um, you write that your work focuses on the intersection of design, craft, and contemporary art. And I'm interested in that intersection and how you think about that intersection. And so when you, when you use those words, design, craft, and contemporary art, what do those mean for you? And how do you kind of see those coming together uh, for your research focus? Yeah, that is a great place to start. Um, I think what I would say is that phrase, as I'm using it in my bio, is intended to pragmatically give people a sense of why <laughs> they might be interested in my work and why I might be interested in theirs. But I have to say behind that, there's maybe a very specific position, which is that I don't think craft, design, and art are parallel terms at all. Mm-hmm. And they do intersect, but they intersect in quite unpredictable and fascinating ways. So I don't think of it as like a Venn diagram of three circles that overlap in one spot. If it's a diagram, it's probably three or four dimensional. And the reason is that I think of craft essentially as a verb that's about skilled making at human scale. So it's an action. Mm. I think of art as a theoretical construct an institutional construct. And I think of design more as a profession 
hmm. than anything else. So they intersect, but maybe in the way that, for example, the color red, the weight, 50 pounds, and the temperature of the day might intersect. You see what I mean? Yeah. They're totally different kinds of thing, but they do collide in ways that are specific. And I'm very interested in those configurations. I have so many questions <laughs> just, <laughs> just based on that. I mean, it's interesting. This is perhaps more of a comment that we could come back to later, but I think it's interesting that you you specify craft as a verb here in, in, in the way you think about it, because I also in design, think about design as a verb. And, and maybe we can come back to this idea of, of kind of the noun and verb of both craft and design. But you did mention that um, you don't see them as much as, as overlaps, but how they start to maybe talk to each other, or influence each other. Can you talk about that a little bit more and how you see these three distinct areas, you know, coming together in the work that you're doing? Sure. I guess for me, it's really about objects. You know, I'm an object person. And I think an object is a handle that gives you some purchase on reality, the reality around you. Mm -hmm. So for me, the way that craft, art, and design tend to intersect is in that form. So a thing. Um, Obviously, it intersects potentially in architecture, in environments, in digital space. But because most of my work is about tangible artifacts, I tend to think of that first, I guess, when I consider this question. And, you know, it's, it's just a really, um, it's really helpful to think of craft design and art as variables that impinge on one object in different ways. And that could mm. be a painting, it could be a teacup, could be a table. Um, but it's the way that those three uh, conceptual territories converge and also to some extent the way they diverge or pull away from one another that I find fascinating. So maybe just to give an example, because an example might be helpful. Um, you know, you think about a painting by Piet Mondrian, for example, mm-hmm. which is an object, obviously, and it's pretty easy to see why you would think of it as fine art. Uh, it's also probably quite easy to think about why you would see it as design. So right. it's a It's a plan. It's an executed object by a professional. Um, So it has a kind of uh, status as a piece of problem solving, you could say, which is something people often use to define design. Also, maybe less obviously, it's a craft object. You know, it's made very carefully by somebody who had developed a very distinct technique involving, you know, uh, tapes that he would use for masking, uh, very specific types of paint. Um, and so it's it's a handmade artifact as well and skillfully made. Um, so I just use that example maybe because it's not so obvious that it's a craft object until you think about it, at which point it becomes extremely obvious um, and similarly for design. But then you can use the same set of uh, characteristics to understand a chair or anything else. And mm-hmm. you can see that, for example, its status as a fine art object, the Mondrian painting, uh, implies a kind of utopian, you know, perfectionism, a sort of transcendental relationship to materiality that mm-hmm. actually exists in tension with the handcraftedness of the painting. So that would be an example of the kind of divergence I mentioned earlier. So let's let's talk about craft specifically, because I think out of those those three, design, craft, contemporary art, that is the one that I perhaps understand the least or, or know the least about. 
uh, which is why it's been so interesting to to research and prepare for this because I have so many questions about it. And, and I think it's interesting to think about craft in relationship to design or in opposition to design, perhaps. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that definition of craft that you said earlier about it being a verb, about it being a tool, a, a skill set? How do you define craft and how can we kind of generally think about what craft is when you use that word yeah so what i say is skilled making at human scale and Mm -hmm. this is a formula i came up actually um relatively recently um because i had been asked so often to define it (laughs) right i figured i knew you would (laughs) what i used to say was it it's what you think it is or it's what your parents (laughs) think it is like don't overthink it that was the only piece of advice I had for people, but that turned out not to be very satisfying. Um, so I, I came up with this very short definition, skilled making in human scale. And of course, what you'll notice is that the words in it all seem like they probably require further explanation or definition. So what did we mean by skill? What kind of making? What does human scale mean? So you could break those down a little further, but at least it points you in the right direction. So skill implying that you're talking about human capability, probably something you've been trained to do over a long period of time, not something you can just do because you want to, Mm. which has all sorts of implications with respect to the uh, lifespan of the maker and the value they present to to an economy. Um, Making implying physicality, so not just thinking about something, but actually doing it, acting in the world, uh, dealing with materiality. And then human scale, Uh, There is where I'm referring, as you said, to tools and tooling systems. So once something starts to become factory-sized rather than the size of what you can do in front of you with your own hands, you're probably not talking about craft anymore. So it's, it's, it's the making that's human scale. It's not necessarily the result. Obviously, a cathedral is a craft object, and that's certainly not human scale. So it's, it's the act of making skillfully Mm. that I mean is human scaled in this definition. It's it strikes me, and and you've written about this before about how craft as an idea, let's say, or craft as a as as a term or a, or a definition is something that really is kind of tied up with the industrial revolution, and that it, that it um, you wrote, and I'm paraphrasing, and so correct me if this is is not an accurate, uh, you know, kind of summary. That in many ways, craft as a kind of discrete area of study or as a as a a subject matter comes out of the industrial revolution in it, in that it was like the opposite of industrialization. It is this kind of human scale quality. And what I think is interesting about that is that that also is when a lot of design historians kind of talk about the invention of design or at least contemporary design is that it is a very industrial revolution thing, this kind of mass production, larger scale distribution. And so for me, as someone coming to this conversation from a from a design side, it's it's interesting how, in many ways, craft and design. Uh, I, I'm thinking about this. I, I don't know if I agree with what I'm about to say, so I kind of just want to hear your thoughts on it. Craft and design almost like need each other. You know, like you need the other to define the other. Perhaps. What do you think about that? Huh. I guess I would say that about craft and industry. Mm. I'm not sure I feel that way about craft and design. Maybe okay. I could loop back to that in a second, because I first wanted to say something about the invention of craft. Okay, yeah. Which is a book, that's the title of a book I wrote some years ago. <laughs> and right. what, what I meant by it was that craft needed to be invented as the opposite of industry. Right, right. So here I was very inspired by feminist 
methodology and to some degree post-colonial uh, methodology. Um, for example, you know, Edward Said's famous book, Orientalism, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where he talks about Eurocentric culture inventing itself by defining its opposite as the Orient mm-hmm, or the mm-hmm. exotic. And similarly, there's a lot of um, powerful feminist thinking that presents woman as being defined negatively as not male, right? which turns out to be a means for men to define themselves in absence of any particular characteristics or you can think about whiteness working this way as well. So defining a power um, position as normative and without qualities. And so craft is invented in that way, in the sense that industry is understood to be the modern, progressive, efficient way of achieving things. And the way it turns out is that most convenient to describe that is to say that it's not craft. Mm-hmm. And also craft, not coincidentally, is often located in the work of women, in the work of non-Europeans. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you have these overlapping power dynamics that are in play. So the way I think of it is that craft and industry are simultaneously invented as opposing terms in that sense. And that's still an opposition that we have with us today, but that right. we should understand that not as a natural or inevitable way of thinking about things and we should understand the terms craft and industry and their opposition to one another as the result of a specific historical set of forces in play which were in fact eurocentric and patriarchal in a way that's a a thread i think of your new book craft in american history which i want to talk about in a second but i want to come back to something you said about kind of this invention of craft as the opposite uh of the opposite of industry and especially craft being uh in many ways uh, a domain of of women of indigenous cultures that is left out of larger histories and larger narratives and i think about that in, again coming back to design history and the design history that i you know design history kind of programs that i have gone through i've always thought that you know a lot of these ideas of craft have a place in design history curriculums but are often left out and you've written before uh, about how marginalizing craft as an area of study is also a way of marginalizing people and i'm curious if you could talk about that a little bit and why you know, is it just is it just sexism and racism that that craft has been kind of disregarded for for so long? Or can you talk a little bit about why that's that's not been seen as a serious area of study for for you know a, a long stretch of history? Well, first of all, just to say again that the marginalization of people comes first, and the marginalization right, of what right, they do right. comes second. I think one reason it becomes so intractable is because we're talking about power dynamics. And those power dynamics are, of course, actually mapped out in the realm of production. So the means that people have at their disposal are related to how much capital they have, cultural capital and economic Mm -hmm. capital. So in addition to the fact that uh, craft is defined as small scale or backward or traditional or marginal, Mm -hmm. it is also actually weaker. So it's not just that it's purely symbolic here. We're also talking about the real difficulty of competing as a craftsperson against a factory system in the 19th century, let's say. And of course, that's still true today, that kind of dynamic. Uh, so I, I always want to make sure that we're keeping both the symbolic register and the actual physicality of production in mind and thinking about the way they relate to one another. I think um, just to get back to your question about design, 
I think that's why it doesn't scan totally um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in the way that craft versus industry does. I don't think craft versus design has that kind of natural opposition to it. Um, mm. Partly, I might point to the fact that you're talking about maybe some different historical shapes there. Like for me, the idea of design as a discrete profession doesn't really emerge until the 1920s. Right. So right. after the arts and crafts movement has risen and fallen, really, in fact. Um, although you have some forerunners like maybe Christopher Dresser in the 19th century, people often point to him as the first industrial designer, but he didn't call himself that. <laughs> right, right, you know? right. Yeah. And, and I, I sort of think of the word design as being much more flexible and maybe less charged politically in some ways, right. and um, therefore extremely useful. And, um, you know, a word that I believe in and use a lot, but I don't think it carries with it the same kind of historical freight that I'm talking about when, when I talk about craft. I want to kind of maybe use that to talk about this this book a little bit, um, because this new book is called Craft in American History. And in one way, it is a history of craft in the United States, but it is also a, a sort of revisionist history of the United States. In a way, it is a history of capitalism. In a way, I'm curious how you begin a book like this. Like, how what was the research process like, and how did you begin to think about the story and stories that you wanted to tell in a book like this? Yeah, you know, it, it was a hard book to start. It was even a hard book to commit to writing because it just seems so vast and intimidating, to be honest. You know, the idea was to write the history of America through the eyes of its artisans. That was like the working premise, which is in fact what I feel like I tried to go on and do. Um, But there's just so much territory. I mean, it's four centuries plus. It's every trade. It's all sorts of different kinds of people. Um, And also I was very aware that I wanted to foreground the perspectives of African-Americans, Native Americans, and Mm -hmm. women Mm -hmm. as three of the main platforms of the story and not being African-American, Native American, or a woman. I was also quite concerned about issues of speaking for people and avoiding that. So I think methodologically, that was the biggest issue for me, the biggest hurdle to clear. Um, However... I did have a lot of advantages, I suppose, um, because I was very aware that there were these existing areas of literature or kinds of writing that I could blend together that hadn't been intertwined in that way before. So here I'm thinking, for example, of the history of labor movements in America or the history of immigration or women's history specifically or Native American histories. And then, of course, there's the more obvious uh, you know, art histories of craft movements, especially the arts and crafts movement and the studio craft movement after World War II. And so I was aware that I could take those different arenas of thinking and historical work and simply try to put them together into one continuous narrative. And so that became the challenge. And I guess that also ultimately gave me what I hope was a solution for the problem of speaking for demographics of who I am not one which is that what I tried to do was find voices who I could simply present in their own words. And obviously that's not always easy to find because of course, most, let's say 18th and 19th century African-American artisans, very, very few of them left us their own words. But in a book of this scale, there were certainly enough people that I could use in a way emblematically that I didn't have to 
do all the talking. You know, I could right, I could right. sort of bring people on stage and allow their autobiographies or um, other texts that they left behind to to do that work. And so that was sort of how I I guess came to grips uh, with that problem, became comfortable with it. I I have like a very this is this is such a, a perhaps like reductive boring question, but I'm I'm so curious now because I I was in reading it I was just kind of in awe of the scope of of the book and the even this these kind of modes of writing that you're talking about I think really come through and I'm I'm just really curious like what that research and writing process <laughs> was was like 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 how do you begin to organize all of this you know did you have an arc in mind were you kind of patchworking this together as you went can you just talk a little bit about about that process Mm, yeah i mean it was total patchwork to be honest um i'd had chronology on my side which has actually not been a feature of a lot of my previous books they've been more thematic and so in some ways Mm. you just put things in order (laughs) <laughs> right, 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 right. And you've already gotten a long ways there. Yeah. Um, and I guess there were also some other kind of overarching themes that I knew I wanted to emphasize. Like a really good example of that would be the relationship between individualism and community identity. Yeah. yeah. Which comes up over and over again. And if you think about it, it's a major issue at the time of the revolution. Mm-hmm. You know, what is this new country going to be about? And what mm-hmm. are its politics going to be? And then you you know, go right through the 19th century, the sort of cult of the so-called self-made man, mm-hmm. which is a telling phrase because it obviously excluded women mm-hmm. entirely um, from its symbolism. Um, and then right up to the civil rights movement and the other movements of the late 20th century, there's also a very interesting interplay between the rights of the individual and the interests of the individual and this idea of group identity. Um, and craft is used to articulate all of those questions so that that was the other way that the structure came for, together for me just noticing patterns and kind of drawing them through i want to i want to talk more about this individualism and, and community aspect because that is like you said a, a major theme and it, it comes up right at the beginning of of the book and goes all the way to all the way to the end actually um we're, you know, I, w- I was really kind of amazed at the beginning when you take this sort of Hamilton, Jeffersonian, states' rights, federal government, and connect that to this idea of craft and to connect that to this idea of of independence and this idea of individualism and, and community. For someone who hasn't read the book, can you talk about the role of craft in that idea and what craft can kind of tell us about this idea of the individual versus the community? Yeah. So the uh, issue there really is that you have two conflicting ideas of individualism. I don't think there's anyone in in America in the late 18th and early 19th century who's contesting individualism as a major value that this new country is going to espouse. That seems Mm -hmm. to be pretty clear. But the question is whose individual rights count most. And so Hamilton would be on the side essentially of capital and Jefferson has this idea of the smallholder yeoman farmer. And again, mm-hmm. both mm-hmm. of these politicians are thinking about men here, white men. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, worth always reemphasizing that. Um, so the conversation we were having a few minutes ago, Jared, about the Industrial Revolution and the opposition between craft and industry, this is how this debate gets played out in right. the early years, the you know early years of uh, America's. Uh, statehood. And so 
effectively what happens is that Hamilton wins in the long run and his ideal of a centralized, um, capitalized infrastructure takes hold in the North, especially, and ultimately that plants the seeds for an economy that wins the Civil War, which kind of confirms that that, that is going to be the uh, way that the economy is structured. And so Kraft is left in the margins in that sense. And obviously I'm oversimplifying massively here. Right, um, right. But that's, <laughs> I mean, people can read the book. <laughs> yeah, but those are the basic contours. So you have um, this idea that the individualism that counts is going to be the individualism of people who are successful, frankly, right, according right. to you know the kind of brutal terms of a competitive economy. Right. And that individualism as is expressed through, let's say, creativity or expression or uh, what William Morris would ultimately come to call joy and labor, that mm-hmm. is going to be de-emphasized um, mm-hmm. as, you know, within our, our set of national values, as it were. But of course, those values don't go away. And there's this ongoing kind of grinding problem that those values are being insufficiently attended to by the whole society and by the economy, especially. And that right. drives along the story forward. I mean, can I have a? I'm not totally sure how to ask this question. I'm 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 trying to kind of figure out the best way to articulate this because I think what's interesting, and you've kind of been talking around this in a lot of ways. We've been kind of hitting it at a, a different different levels, but I want to. I'm 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 really curious to hear you kind of talk about it at length. This relationship between craft and capitalism, and how how in the book there's there are these kind of moments where we we think of the history of the United States um, as one of progress, of industry, of of growth, of you know of capitalism, and you and you kind of are showing how craft though in opposition to a lot of these things, thinking about craft as the opposite of industry also was fundamental to all of these things, right? Hmm. And so I'm curious if you can kind of talk about the role of craft within a a sort of kind of capitalist society when crafts at at kind of face value seems like it goes against a lot of the ideas of, 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 you know, a quote unquote good capitalist or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, It's a great question. And this is where it gets really complicated in some ways. Um, (laughs) But just to try to keep it simple, you know, in some ways you can think of it as a return of the repressed. Mm. Like you can try your best to drum craft and all of its inconveniences and inefficiencies and individual peculiarities, you know, and, you can try to get rid of all that and not have these pesky artisans that you have to negotiate with because they have so much leverage, you know, you can't replace them easily, right? Big, big problem for a capitalist is to be dependent on their skilled workforce. So they're trying to always de-skill the workforce so they have more control. Um, And by the way, if they don't, then their competitor will, and their competitor will put them out of business. So there's a kind of Darwinian process here. It's not just individual, uh, you know, sinister motivation. It's also mm-hmm, like the, mm-hmm. the, the logic of the capitalist economy at work. Um, but all the time, and this is the return of the repressed part, you have an ongoing dependency. So although the economy may have been gradually converted from an artisanal economy, as in the 18th century, to a mass production-based economy, as in the 20th century, with the 19th century as a kind of transition zone, you're still going to have the sort of elite or highly trained craft workforce that's going to be critical for you. 
and that remains true today. So, you know, if you have a smartphone, you can bet that a very skilled model maker did the initial work in helping to design it. You know, mm. Johnny Ive at Apple will always talk about hand craftsmanship as mm-hmm. one of the key factors that's in play there. And that has been true again, going all the way back. So the first machine tools that drove the industrial revolution, of course, were built by skilled machine builders. Henry Ford himself started as a machinist uh, and mm-hmm. was extremely uh, knowledgeable about um, about the artisanal trades that would happen in a garage or a um, technician shop. And so, you know, although the great majority of the population is no longer involved in craft, it still retains an extremely important role, particularly, and this is the ironic part, particularly in context where you're trying to achieve some kind of innovative result. So Mm. wherever you have innovation, you're always going to have craftspeople at work, which is, of course, the opposite of the way that we usually think of it. We usually think of it as a kind of, um, you know, game preserve for old skills, you know, something that happens at a like outdoor historic museum. And it is that, but it's also at the same time what's happening in Apple HQ. Right, right. I mean, so... I, I, you, you connected to exactly where I wanted to, to take the conversation to, because I wanted to kind of talk about the the role of craft today and why this book is so, I, I, you don't have to speak about the book specifically, but I, I think this book lands at a particular moment that is also telling. And I'm, I'm interested in the role of craft today. And I remember, it was probably 10 years ago, I read... Uh, Matt Crawford's Shopcraft is, is Soulcraft, which you mentioned in the book. And I think you articulated a lot of the problems that I had with that book that I couldn't quite articulate at the time, which is about this, again, coming back to this myth of individualism, this idea uh, of kind of self-sufficiency. And what you are kind of talking about is is craft as a very socialist idea about this kind of community aspect of it. And I'm wondering if you could kind of talk about that and its role today in 2021? Yeah, sure. I mean, right now, 2021 is definitely an all-time high watermark in terms of craft energy in the culture in the United Mm -hmm. States. And you can ask why that is, and maybe it's a hard question to answer. Um, You know, it certainly compares with the late 60s where it had an incredible validity during the counterculture, or as I said, the arts and crafts movement of the turn of the 20th century. I think the factors that are going into it now are quite different. You know, there's the most recent spasm of the pandemic and people being thrown back on their own resources psychologically and otherwise. Mm -hmm. And this idea that craft is something that keeps you sane when you're locked indoors with one or two people, same people every day, all day. And so a lot of people have resorted to craft as a way of getting through this time. And there's also a little bit of actual necessity like the hand making of masks for example or mm. maker spaces creating personal protective equipment and that's a real thing too although i think it's um maybe not nearly as widespread as the more psychological or therapeutic relevance of it mm. but you know before the pandemic this was already underway and there were uh craft based businesses that were establishing themselves and finding success to agree that just hadn't been true for a long time Ironically, I think one reason that happened is actually because of the internet. Yeah. So this is another one of these kind of curious, uh, contradictory situations where you might think these two things are totally opposed, but actually 
the internet as a system of distribution and sales is precisely what's allowed artisanal businesses to succeed. You know, so mm. like the Instagram artisan right. um, is sort of a, you know, representative figure of our times in some ways. And then there's also the sense that people want to have their hands on something real and tangible. That's not fake news. That's not just right. clicking your way through an endless, you know, rabbit hole of websites. Um, and craft obviously provides that as well. So both in a positive and negative sense, the experience of the digital is in a way amplifying the significance of the analog. And so right. all those things together are resulting in what I almost want to call another craft revival, you know, which is mm. kind of historical sounding word, but it, that's kind of how it feels to me. It, it does suggest some of the contours of the arts and crafts movement, but just transpose into a totally different key. I'm interested. I have like two questions that are, are kind of tied up together because I, I think you're, a hundred percent right about the influence of the internet on this. And when I work with graduate, my graduate thesis students every year for probably the last five years or so, I have at least one student who wants to do a thesis project on craft hmm. um, and something related to, to craft. And what often is revealed in their, you know, maybe biases or what they mean when they say craft is something that's hand done, something that that isn't digital. I think part of that is just because these are kids who have grown up in a purely digital world and, and they are interested in that. And I'm I'm curious about the, uh, the relationship between craft and technology, and specifically the how to avoid the romanticism of craft but actually to kind of see its value if that makes sense mm. you know so we're not just saying like let's uh you know let's let's make things with our hands because that's cool or trendy but that there's actually some kind of idea there and then and then the second part is this this role of the internet and is there is does craft have to be something that is not digital i guess or can there actually be you know digital craft or, or craft and technology or something. You know what I mean? Mm. Well, maybe I could answer the second one first because okay. it seems a little more straightforward to me. Um, I basically think that this definition skilled making at human scale can just be translated into a digital context. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I don't see any reason why you want to arbitrarily say, oh, digital tools can't count as craft right, right. when analog tools do. I think you'd still want to make sure that you were holding on to the ideas of skill making and human scale, because right. otherwise you probably are off talking about something else. I mean, right. Richard Sennett in his very mm -hmm. uh, widely read, you know, deservedly widely read book, The Craftsman, used the term in a much more metaphorical way than I do, and he would apply right. it to something like you know coding in Linux or right. um, playing right. the violin, which, as you'll notice, are not physical and in the second case is not making an object so i don't tend to think of like musical performance as a craft in that sense um and similarly i think most digital practices probably aren't but if you're using a 3d printer in a very specific informed skilled way to make an object i don't see why that shouldn't be counting counted as craft let's say right um but the other question you asked is a little hard to answer partly because i feel like Although I share your intuition that one would want to avoid romanticism, the first thing that popped into my head is to th think that the romanticization of craft is a big part of the reason that it does have power. Mm. Mm. And so 
even if you could get rid of that set of attitudes and expectations, I'm not even sure you would want to because it's like the poetics and the emotional register of craft rather than its actual ability to deliver the goods, literally. Right. That gives it so much, um, you know, cultural significance. And that's, again, as true today as it's ever been. So if you're finding that your students are engaging in a kind of self-romanticization of their own desire to, let's say, slow down or take time or exhibit a kind of care over the objects that they're making, then maybe that would be something to more channel and focus rather than try to talk them out of. Right. right. And I don't mean to like speak for my students or to, you know, to, <laughs> to, to judge them in some way, but I do think I, like you're starting to get to kind of what I guess the real question was, which is, you know, this, 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 this kind of romantic idea of slowing down, of going off the grid, of, of working with your hands, which I guess goes back to your original definition of craft you know, at the beginning of this. And so, so maybe that romanticization isn't such a bad idea. At the end of, at the end of your book, you talk about craft washing, which I thought was a, a really interesting idea that I was also thinking about where we have these things like craft breweries and this co-opting of craft mm. to signal something. And I'm curious how that fits into this. Perhaps maybe that's the romanticizing that I'm talking about. This idea where craft is now, you know, a brand or a buzzword in some cases. Um, what do you think about that? Or how does that relate to, to this larger history that we're talking about? Yeah, you can only be skeptical about that sort of thing. I mean, the, the term craft washing, which I certainly didn't invent, it's sort of, um, you know, been put forward by other scholars, but it's it's grafted onto this idea of greenwashing, which mm-hmm. is when a company claims to be ecologically sensitive, but isn't. It's just a kind of, you know, um, right. like a hood ornament of right. eco-sensitive um activity on a still belching gas guzzling vehicle you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. and similarly with uh craft washing you know my favorite example would be a jeep commercial that i saw a few years ago that heavily featured blacksmiths hitting things with hammers on anvils as if your <laughs> right. latest jeep cherokee was actually right. hand wrought right. um, and that sort of thing is first of all absurd and insulting um but also secondarily maybe makes you think, well, maybe craft is winning the argument here because there's, mm. there's something that the corporation is not able to offer except through transparently fraudulent means. Oh, that's interesting. So yeah. I, I tend to think of it as an indication that there's a generally positive instinct out there in the culture that the corporations are trying, as usual, to catch up with and distort. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily even think of that as a romanticization. I just think of it as exploitation, really. Right, right. Um, But I think what it all comes down to is that, and this is admittedly somewhat subjective, whether you're talking about individual romanticization or whether you're talking about um, the so-called authenticity of a traditional craft Mm -hmm. culture or you're talking about the individual expression of one person's artistic practice, what you're ultimately trying to find is something human human and humane that's Mm -hmm. the reason why you would care about any of this in the first place and it is again Mm -hmm. inherent in that definition you know skilled Mm -hmm. making at human scale the words in there and again the word skill also to me suggests something that's uniquely 
proper to humans. You know, we don't talk about animals as being skilled and we don't talk about computers as being skilled. Right. It's something that has to do with people. I mean, it's, yeah, it's interesting. It is. It's like a, it's a, it's a branding piece in that it is exploitation is a, is a good word um, where, you know, it's, it conjures the, I apologize for the stereotype, but like the Brooklyn hipster, you know, the, like this, this specific way of selling something, which I think also connects to design in a way where, you know, we talk about designer goods and that those are seen as something that is more expensive. You have your designer bag or you have your, you know, your craft beer that is somehow opposite to the mainstream or different than the mainstream in some way. And uh, you wrote a piece recently on Enzo Mari and, and his uh, mm. his bookshelf and connected that to the, the Bauhaus and these sort of socialist ideals in the Bauhaus and this idea of like the best products for the most people and how that then, you know, when it gets tied up with, with capitalism, starts to lose its initial uh, kind of utopian ideals. And I guess, I guess I'm kind of curious about that parallel in craft and how we get back to this idea that craft something that is that has craftspersonship you know when johnny ive is talking about you know the craftsmanship of of the iphone or whatever that that doesn't just mean expensive just like a designer bag shouldn't just mean expensive but is also something that is intentional that is uh um you know thoughtful in some way and how we get back to that being something that should be for everyone not just people who have the resources for it Mm, yeah so maybe just get a little more into the enzo mari example because it's such a good example what i was thinking about particularly in that article in the nation was the weird similarity between mari's famous auto projezione uh -hmm. furniture and ikea Right, right. So for people that don't know the Mari project, it's a really good example of something, by the way, that could be looked at as art or design or craft and is best looked at as all three simultaneously. So it's a kind of conceptual or speculative design project edging into a kind of conceptual art premise. Well, I don't think he would have <laughs> yeah. looked at it that way. It's hard not to look at it that way in retrospect, um, where he would publish the designs for furniture that could be made using the materials from the local DIY shop and with basically no advanced carpentry skills whatsoever, but you would Mm -hmm. end up with a piece of modernist design by Enzo Mari at the end of the Mm -hmm. day. Mm -hmm. And of course they look exactly like cheap plywood furniture from Ikea. (laughs) And so the, the thought experiment of that article was how can it be that this avowedly communist, you know, fiercely radical figure in Italian design could be making objects that look so similar to what the arch capitalist, you know, right. low price um, mass producer of all time makes. And that those two objects that are so similar could be loaded down with such opposite ideological connotations. So partly it's just a matter of asking that question and pointing to the contradiction. But right. what I then tried to go on and do is show how that contradiction was built into the founding principles of modernism and precisely as you're saying jared this idea that you want to bring quality to the masses right which is of course what the Bauhaus always said that they were trying to do although they completely failed to do mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. um but not surprising that it would fail in such adverse political circumstances and in such a short time and in some ways you could say that ikea is the ultimate realization of their goals <laughs> that ikea is a kind of Bauhausian project yeah, yeah. but on the other hand you might think that no, it's Enzo Mari, who is the Bauhausian, because he's extending the avant-garde 
um, political mm. project of the right. of that early modernist era, and of course both are true. So it's it's a sort of noticing of the doubleness and the inherent contradictory nature of um, of modern design, I suppose. Yeah, I have a couple questions to begin to wrap up, and I want to kind of completely change the subject a little bit, or or maybe go back to what we were talking about at the beginning, because you. Uh, for a couple of years, were the director of the Museum of Arts and Design here in New York. And that museum used to be called the American Craft Museum. And when you were appointed, one of your uh, kind of stated goals was to champion craft again, to bring kind of craft back in into that museum. And I think, you know, perhaps that's a good way to think about this idea of the the um, relegation of craft as a kind of second second class citizen in this you know in this mm-hmm. in this kind of uh, triangulation and I'm I'm interested in in your time there and I know it was, it was that was 2013 to 16 right mm-hmm. that's right um, how you thought about bringing craft back up to like a level alongside art and design to kind of go back to its history and make that a a kind of central part of that. Because I think, I think museums are an interesting key here in talking about how these things fit together. Yeah, for sure. And you know, the, that museum, when they used to be the museum of contemporary crafts before they Mm -hmm. became the American craft museum and then museum of arts and design, you know, founded in 1956, they were very much conceived as the headquarters of the studio craft movement. And then, played that role very successfully for many years, especially under Paul Smith, um, who sadly passed away last year, who was my predecessor as director there. So when I came into the position in 2013, you know, I was aware that the name change had happened at a moment when craft was not considered to be that valuable of an asset for them institutionally. It was before this kind of revival energy that we were talking about a moment ago. Mm-hmm. And I think that they were really chafing under the sense of themselves as self-marginalizing or creating problems for themselves, frankly, probably especially on the fundraising side, which of course is so critical in an American private right. museum. Right. And so that was really what had motivated their change. But of course, you can't just, you know, input a new mission into a museum. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And also the fact that they were called the Museum of Arts and Design didn't necessarily indicate any particular direction of travel. So mm-hmm. I felt like it was a good time to recommit to that founding vision. And indeed, this, um, you know, I think a lot of that logic was was sound and it really stuck. Um, yeah. And in fact, they're about to open a, an exhibition of their permanent collection that's literally called Craft Front and Center. You know, right. it couldn't be more yeah. explicit. And um, that's being done by people that I worked with and a couple of cases hired when I was there. So I think it has had a lasting effect, that contribution. Um, I will say, because there's a question sort of behind your question, that I don't necessarily think I was that cut out to be a museum director. <laughs> okay, okay. So, you know, I, I think I, I had some uh, of the requisite skills, but probably not all of them and maybe that maybe every director feels like that i don't know but as you can probably tell from the conversation that we've been having i tend to go in a fairly um historical maybe some theoretical direction when i'm thinking about these things and that's not really what you're doing when you're a director you're having lunch trying to get people to give you money so that you can keep the museum open and I, i did enjoy that to some extent and i was sort of learning that trade but when I did leave the museum and go back to writing and curating things, to be honest, I was a lot happier. 
Well, that yeah, you 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 read right through me. That was my my next question, and this is a question I've been asking a lot of people lately, and I I honestly don't know if anyone else is interested in this other than me. But I'm very interested in the the relationship or the balance or the intersection between administration and scholarship. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about that as we were talking, and 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 your 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 the scholarship that went into this new book the scholarship that's gone into to all of your writing how you balanced that or thought about continuing that while also having to think about fundraising and programming and having lunch with donors and and you know maybe you just you didn't like it and that's why why you left but can you talk a little bit about being in a position like that having to be an executive having to be an administrator but then also continuing your own scholarship and research mm, sure um I, th- I mean, I don't know if other people are interested in this. If they're not, they should be. <laughs> I think so, too. I think this is such an interesting topic. And it's so critical to the ecosystem that we inhabit. And, you know, I feel so fortunate to have had the opportunity to do that, as difficult and stressful as it was. And it was mm-hmm. difficult and stressful. And again, I think any museum director would say that um, off the record, <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> but boy, did I learn a lot. I mean, yeah. I, I learned more intensely in that job than I did in graduate school at Yale by a long shot. Mm. And I also feel like the kinds of things that I learned helped me understand the world that I'm trying to write about very, very frequently. Oh, interesting. Because, of course, what I'm writing about is institutional structures. Um, right. You know, I do teach sometimes, and I often say to people that you really don't want your first published pieces of writing to be reviews. And also, you should never try to review something until you've done something like that. So you shouldn't review a book until you've written a book. You shouldn't review an exhibition until you've curated one, because you really don't know what you're talking about on some fundamental level, unless you've actually followed that trajectory all the way through. And I guess I feel like having gone through the experience of being a director just gives me such a much more multidimensional appreciation of what goes into an institution so I yeah. feel really grateful for having had the opportunity to see that up close, you know, and to understand yeah. what that is. That's really interesting. Were you able, were, did you have time or were you able to, to research and write while you were there? Not really. I mean, <laughs> okay. I, I was, I, I did maybe a little bit, but mostly it was all um, secondhand, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, remote control rather than. Right. In other words, I, I was I would come up with ideas, but then I would need to ask other people to help me Got execute it. them because I just didn't have the time. Um, yeah. The one thing I guess I did do that was curatorial there was this, an exhibition about Peter Volkus, the great right. 1950s, 60s uh, breakthrough ceramic artist. And I did have a co-curator and a very, very good assistant curator on that project, but I put quite a bit of time into it too. But even that, although the project itself was quite successful, I sort of felt like I shouldn't have tried to get away with that. I just don't mm. think that that directing and curating are compatible, to be honest. I really appreciate that insight too, by the way. I've, like I said, I've been asking people this, people who have been in these similar situations um, on the podcast a lot. And I think that's a really interesting insight. Um, so, you, I mean, so you left that in 2016, you've been working on this book that just came out at the beginning of the year. Uh What's next for you? What are you thinking about now? What are do you have ideas for for next projects that you are willing to talk about? Sure, yeah. I mean, th- th- this sounds like I'm almost making a joke, but I, I'm actually working on the future. <laughs> <laughs> 
uh, in two senses. So I'm on the curatorial team for a big project that's opening at the Smithsonian this November. Mm-hmm. So November 2021. So that project is called Futures. And it's a reopening of the Arts and Industries building. It was super mm. interesting, uh, kind of amazing piece of architecture on the National Mall that's been closed for quite a few years. Um, and this is uh, an exhibition that's going to be kicking off a major renovation campaign. The building was actually the first U.S. National Museum, so it used to be extremely important and sort of a generator, incubator of other Smithsonian Institution museums. Mm. So, for example, all the rockets that eventually ended up over at the Air and Space Museum, used to be lined up in front of the Arts and Industries building. Interesting. Rocket Row, it was called. So it's been this kind of future-oriented place from the beginning. Um, and we're doing something that feels like a kind of 21st century woke world's fair. Um, Interesting. It's a, I'm intrigued. Yeah, so it, it has all of these kind of scientific and technological and, of course, design-based things as well as fine art and then historical objects from the collections across the Smithsonian. So I'm on the team for that. And then I'm just beginning um, the kind of initial development of a book that um, I'm hoping would be called The Future A History that looks Mm -hmm. at the role of the futurologist and more generally the idea of prediction as Mm -hmm. an influential practice in modern life. So here thinking about people as diverse as, let's say, Buckminster Fuller, or yeah. Octavia Octavia Butler, who seems to be on everybody's mind at the moment, and mm-hmm. thinking about these uh, kind of self-appointed prophets and what their power says. You know, I think of them as the kind of storytellers of our age, yeah. uh, the great storytellers of our age. And I'm so I'm very interested in writing a kind of um, history of modern culture via its preoccupations with the future. So that's my next, hopefully my next project. That's, I, that's so interesting. I'm so mad I asked about this at the end of the conversation. <laughs> does this, does, is there a connection between this kind of futures book project and craft? Yes, there is. Um, although I don't know that anybody else will care. But <laughs> I'm, I'm probably not going to go into it in too much detail in the book. But I was thinking... I seem to have this weird kind of pendulum swing happening in my work because, you know, I've been working on crafts since I was in graduate school. But then when I was working at the Victoria and Albert Museum, um, I got to do a project on postmodernism with my great friend and colleague, Jane Pavitt. So we curated that show together in 2011, I guess it was. And you could really see postmodernism in a lot of ways as being the opposite of craft, not in the sense that industry is, but Mm. in the sense that it embraces the image and right. the facade and the communicative act instead right. of the substance, substantial right. or the physical object. And so that, that's one pendulum swing. And now for me, thinking about the future is another one, because if you think about it, a futurologist is like nothing but spin. Mm. You know, I, I often <laughs> say that cra- the thing people love about craft is that you can't spin it. Like if you know what you're looking at, it just right. can't, you can't hide. There's nowhere to hide in a craft object. Whereas the future is the biggest hiding place that was ever invented because it's fundamentally unverifiable. And so it's a space of imagination, a space Hmm. of, um, I suppose, persuasion also and fantasy. So it it completely detaches itself from the uh, realities of your 
physical environment and operates according to basically a, an invented set of rules. And so again, it's, it's, it has everything to do with my interest in craft, but in a sort of backwards, upside down way. That is interesting. And that, that, is, a, that is a great connection. I was very curious how you're going to connect, connect these two things. Um, my last question, I'm just curious what you're reading right now. Oh, yeah. Um, well, let's see. I, um, the, the thing I'm literally reading at the moment is a new book called The Free World by Louis Menand, who mm-hmm. is a staff writer at The New Yorker, and people mm-hmm. may know his book, The Metaphysical Club, mm-hmm. um, which is about 19th century American pragmatism. And that's actually a topic that intersects with craft history yeah. in a lot of interesting ways. Um, but you know, he, like Jill Lepore, another American historian who I really, really respect, they're sort of my new role models. Mm. And I guess coming out of, you know, writing this most recent book, Craft in American History, I sort of realized that I didn't have to be an art historian anymore mm. or a craft historian in a sort of narrow sense of that term, like somebody who only thinks about objects in museums. I could be any kind of historian that I wanted. And... <laughs> It's like, yeah. you know, just maybe just part of like growing up <laughs> still. Yeah. But yeah. I, I feel like there are these moments that you give yourself permission to look at the broadest canvas that you can possibly manage. Mm-hmm. Um, and so somebody like Lepore, who was super important to me when I was working on this last book or now reading this book by Louis Menand, you know, you just see somebody who's got the facility to yeah. move in and out of all of these different uh, areas, you know, art, literature, political theory, economic history, and sort of integrate them all together. So, yeah. um, yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic book and definitely one that, you know, I'm only a hundred pages in, but I can already feel it influencing the way that I would be approaching my own work. That's a, that's a great, great way to kind of think about this idea of like, not just being an art historian or a craft historian. And that's kind of, in a way, comes back to what we were talking about when I, when I was kind of telling you what I, thought was so interesting about the book is that it's a book about craft but it's also a book about the history of the united states and capitalism and and industry and like all of these different things and and i think the way you weave them together through the lens of craft is a really kind of interesting conceit and so it's actually a great way to kind of wrap up this conversation glenn this was so interesting i I loved the book i I really love talking to you about these things which i admittedly knew very little about until i started kind of prepping for this so thanks for being on the show it's been great to talk to you i really uh really appreciate your interest in the work and it's been a fantastic conversation this episode was recorded on may 3rd 2021 our theme music is by andy borgasani we're on twitter and instagram at surface podcast you can support the show on patreon and find previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts and at scratching the surface.fm thanks for listening <laughs>